Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast about cinema and the Criterion Collection. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nate Myers. Tonight, we confront the silence with Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light. Released in 1963, this is the second film in Bergman's Faith Trilogy. Pastor Tomas Eriksson is a man in crisis. Having lost his wife some four years prior, his suffering outweighs the concerns of his sparse congregation. Members include Jonas, a man fearing nuclear annihilation, Algot, a hunchback with an unwavering faith, and Marta, a lonely schoolteacher who has pinned her hopes of conquering loneliness on the companionship of a mourning minister. When tragedy strikes, Tomas must confront his lack of faith before he destroys what frail human connections he has managed to maintain. Taking place over the course of one afternoon, Bergman's style is almost gritty and certainly less refined than his prior films. Join Nate and me as we find shelter from the winds of doubt in what is Bergman's personal favorite and arguably most religious film. So Nate, uh, before we started, I, I wanted to do uh, a little shameless self-promotion. Um, so I, I directed a film, and it is currently on Amazon Prime in the U.S. and the U.K. for streaming. Uh, it's entitled Cotopaxi, named after the uh, volcano in Ecuador of the same name. Uh, it's a, a sci-fi drama, and it's a micro-budget film. And hopefully, if people are interested and enjoy the Criterion Collection, uh, they'll they'll check it out. I think I think it's a film that um, hopefully our audience would enjoy. So, self promotion ending at that point. We'll leave it at that. Am I allowed to comment or no? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> All right, never mind. We'll move no, that's on. Fine. <laughs> that's fine. You can comment. You're welcome to. No, I just I want to say obviously, you know, it's we'll see. Uh, how you know the streaming services can you know be a great platform for a lot of these kinds of micro budget films, and so hopefully this uh, picks up a bit of an audience for it. And just want to uh, throw my hat in there for you, Matt. Just saying congratulations on a feature film, and just you know it's, it takes a lot of work. And I know just in terms of how you went about making it, uh, the amount of time and energy you dedicated to it. So just want to give you uh, my hats off for uh, seeing it through and uh, getting it to a place where you could have it uh, available for people to see. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Winter Light. So, you know, this is, you know, I, I know we just talked about Bergman recently, but I figured this would be a film worth worth visiting. Well, it's been over uh, half a year, right? Uh, we just did three. Well, I guess Darcy, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I, I figured the timing was right. I mean, we're we're in the middle of winter, of course, but also the uh, the Bergman box set seems to be. Coming back uh, into printers available yet again, so I think a lot of people are hopefully diving into Bergman. Um, and given this is uh, what Bergman considers to be, or considered to be his his personal favorite film, I thought it would be uh, worthwhile to um, to visit this. So, you know, I was kind of trying to think of the best way to approach our discussion. I, I guess. Um, we, we tend to, to start with kind of more general questions or general themes. Uh, some of the films we talked about before are certainly, um, 
have religious elements to them. We can even just talk about films that deal with uh, with the clergy. You know, uh, what, what stands out to you in terms of, uh, you know, a definition of a religious film or uh, probably more specifically films about uh, people that are, uh, you know, in this, in this line of, of service. Uh, just some initial thoughts on that, on that genre in general. Oh, well, we hit on it a bit during our conversation for the last temptation of Christ, uh, yeah. in terms of a religious film and something that's perhaps a distinction to be made between shall we say the evangelical film and the film that is exploring religious themes or religion in of itself, right? That's maybe, not so much trying to evangelize, but is trying to explore this very human phenomenon. Uh, perhaps mm-hmm. a, a fun way to start in this, Matt, I think only people who have seen the Faith Trilogy by Bergman will be able to appreciate this. So I, I came into my office here to start getting things ready for this podcast, and I turned on my light, and lo and behold, I'm not kidding, lo and behold, there was a spider on the desk <laughs> and uh i immediately proceeded to squash it so i don't know if that means i killed god or what that might mean uh but i I just i couldn't help but laugh at at that just like oh this is what i saw my desk and uh this is of course the film we're talking about here right well it's it's god god talking to us i guess i I suppose so um so i think well bergman is definitely a director who's been known for having explored very deep philosophical, psychological, and theological themes. And Mm -hmm. raised by a Lutheran minister who was chaplain to the king, you can see how it's impacted his own life and then his work as a result. And this being a part of the faith trilogy, right? So the first, which we discussed previously, Through a Glass Darkly, and then here is the the second installment being Winter Light, uh, and then finally, the final installment, the third chapter being uh, The Silence, a thematic trilogy, not a, not a strictly sequential trilogy in terms of story or character. Uh, but I think it's worth to kind of think of these as that sort of exploration of this phenomenon of religion in the modern world. Yeah, and, and that, that's, I, I guess that's the better way to phrase the question I'm getting at. I mean, you, you think of Last Temptation of Christ as... It's hard for me to think of that as a religious film. It may sound weird to say because it's such a, a radical reinterpretation of the Gospels. But, you know, looking at this kind of through the lens of religion in a modern world is, is probably the better way to address it. But like I was saying, just films about the clergy, right? Films about pastors or priests, um, you know, religious film in that sense, uh, that's kind of something I wanted to discuss as well. But go ahead, not to interrupt you there. No, no, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine. I think um, you, so obviously this is made in the height of, of the Cold War, right? So 1963, yeah. it's funny because a big part of this is the threat of nuclear war. Uh, and 63, obviously after this movie came out, because it came out in early 63, but that was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I think mm-hmm. an audience watching this film today might find some of its theological concerns or its uh, thoughts of what might be the challenges to traditional conceptions of religion to be outdated because I don't think the modern skeptic 
really looks to the threat of nuclear annihilation as the reason to question God or the uh, question the the dogma of uh, a particular faith, right? Uh, there's other social concerns and ideas, ideologies that have emerged or phenomena that have come about that might have replaced that. Maybe it's terrorism, uh, perhaps it's the advances in technology, AI or something like that, that might be raising those questions now. Uh, so in one sense, this film, I think, does feel dated, but in another sense, it's very timeless. And I think that's because you talked about it as a film about the clergy. It's a film about the clergy, sure, but in a certain sense, that's accidental to what it's considering. Uh, if this had been about a doctor, a lawyer, you could easily be any number of these different pro- professions, right? Uh, so yeah. I think uh, the character Thomas Erickson, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, is not really meant to be simply viewed as a clerical figure, but I think as more ma- modern man at a loss. Now, I think uh, the the story is that this really spurred from a conversation that Bergman had had with a Lutheran pastor about a mm-hmm. meeting with a, a congregant who had then gone and killed himself afterwards, right? So that, yeah, that was kind prompted- of the seed for the for the film. Yeah. Right. So that was the, that was kind of what prompted him and where this all sort of developed out of. But I really think you could see this as being about anybody having an existential crisis and that's not limited to the clergy. That's something that, well, you know, the, the idea of a midlife crisis really is pretty prevalent in, in the world today. And so I yeah. think it could see it's, it's something that's really dealing with a far more human phenomenon, uh, which is the timelessness that you'll find here. Some of it's maybe, yeah, Ruminations aren't so much relevant to us in the early 21st century, but some of its larger themes, I think, speak to the human condition. Yeah, there's universal themes here. I mean, I think the fact that this is a pastor, you know, adds certainly more weight to his crisis. You know, I think, you know, if you if you grow up in the church and, and you you look to your pastor as a source of guidance, I think it's very easy to forget that they are people as well, you know, that have have their own issues and challenges and and their own doubts and uh you you almost kind of see them as impervious to those things and and even though that's obviously not a realistic way to look at um look at another human being in any setting. Uh but I mean, I, I, I don't think his being a, a pastor is immaterial here. I mean, I, again, I think it adds adds quite a bit to uh, to his his suffering and to his plight. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, your point is well taken. There's there's kind of sources of of crisis here among his congregants, or um, Jonas in particular, I guess, uh, his fear of of nuclear war. I think would be lost on on a modern audience, but uh, I think it's easy to to imagine oneself in that situation. Uh, it may be hard to imagine, you know, being so possessed by one idea that it would drive you to uh, to suicide. But it's uh, certainly just that existential dread, that sense of 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 one's impending doom, uh, is, is really a universal theme and just a consequence of being alive. So, uh, nuclear war or not, it's, it's something I think we can relate to. Um, I, I guess in approaching, you know, conversion or, you know, talking about this film, 
kind of beyond just its its genre uh it's a very character driven piece right i mean every character here serves a purpose um you know, and I think I probably made this point before, but films like this are really inspiring to me because it's a pretty simple film, right, in terms of its execution. Uh, the settings are sparse. The characters are few. But you can you can really do a lot with a little. And, you know, this is something I think kind of mentioned in my intro that this is a kind of a more gritty film for Bergman. I mean, from a visual standpoint, I mean, you compare this to Through Glass Darkly, which has very meticulous lighting and, and the cinematography by Sven Nyquist is, is just beautiful in that film. And it's not to say it's not effective here, but it's just a very different film aesthetically. And there seemed to be a very concerted effort to kind of strip away uh, a lot of the gloss uh, that, you know, or a lot of the more meticulous lighting that we see in, in Bergman's earlier films. Um, I mean, the it's title certain, of the film is uh, Winter Light. So, the, you know, kind of a, a more of a emphasis on natural, uh, natural lighting, or at least trying to create a sense of natural lighting, even though most of this film was shot on a stage. Uh, what were you saying? It's a sort of... <clears throat> cinematic asceticism right uh so it's there's a very much is that stripping down of artifice and the intricate lighting i I think particularly the scene where uh tomas comes upon the body of Jonas, right and is uh, after his suicide and the way it's staged in the wide shot and you just have very few setups very far removed it feels almost like documentary footage Right, uh, as if a news crew had been out there at the scene of a, a horrific event and was kind of at a distance, set up its camera and was recording the image, but you know couldn't quite get close, right? Because uh, the you know the, they had it set up far away. That's the way it feels. Yeah. I mean, it does feel very much more re- lived in and real as a result of that, I think. And that does, I, I think, the ascetic nature of the filmmaking highlights and amplifies for us the audience the crises of the characters. And I will say, I mean, I do think you're right that there is a certain kind of embellishment of these themes by the virtue of the fact that it is a cleric at the center of the story, mm-hmm. right? Because people do have a certain association. You bring God into it in a very immediate way. Whereas if it's a lawyer having a crisis as a lawyer, it's not maybe quite as profound to the core of the person, right? It's more of a professional yeah. crisis at that point. Maybe you could extrapolate into this idea of a crisis of what is law, but it's not going to be quite as impactful, I think, as this setting might be, at least for the person who has a religious background watching it. Uh, And I think it does also provide a lot of fruit in terms of the visual imagery, in terms of the literal, uh, or I should say literary aspects of it. Uh, So uh, Thomas's uh, um, mistress is Martha, right? Martha. And, of course, she's always doting on him and providing him food, providing him with his needs. And you go, hmm, I wonder if there's a figure in the Gospels that had a sort of relationship with Jesus like that. Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> oh, that's I right. Know. You know, and what is her name? Oh, that's right. Martha. You know, so, you know, it, it allows that kind of play, 
right? And yeah. for the audience to be able to pick up on that. And the same thing with her wounds. Uh, you know, we hear about in her flashback, right, about how she'd had this terrible rash that created open wounds on her hands, and then it spread to, lo and behold, her forehead and her scalp, and then, oh, eventually to her feet, and it repulsed him. I go, hmm, would there be another figure that might be of interest to a, a Lutheran pastor that might have had similar kinds of wounds? So, I mean, it does bring about, you know, a lot of uh, uh, textual imagery that you can bring yeah. into this film that you wouldn't with just having to be a doctor, a lawyer, uh, whatever it might be. And so I have, I have to agree with you on that, um, that that does add for Bergman certain uh, ways of flourishing the, the thoughts that he's trying to explore here. Yeah, and I think Bergman uh, characterized this film as, as something that was exploring, you know, or, or penetrated certainty, I think was the quote in his own writing. So, uh, again, kind of parsing, you know, one's doubts, right? So as a pastor, you have to almost exude this sense of extreme kind of ironclad confidence. And, you know, what what happens when someone in that kind of setting has these moments of crisis? You know, what does that look like? Um, how does that uh, become resolved or can it ever be resolved? Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, looking back to Through a Glass Darkly, kind of the, the last note from a thematic standpoint in that film was the idea of God, um, God being love, right? So God is love. And, and this film kind of, I think, pivots toward the idea of, of suffering and how does suffering play into one's life? How does God allow suffering? How, how, how is the suffering of Christ instructive in our own lives? Um, I think that's a question that Bergman is is asking here, and I think that's that's something that each character uh, provides a different perspective on. So, I, I thought we could maybe go through each character one by one because I think each it's probably the best way to approach this because each character brings again a different perspective. Uh, to uh, Tomas's crisis, and they affect him in different ways, uh, whether indirectly or or directly. Mm-hmm. So we we already touched on. Um, I, I I just want to mention you know Gunnar Bjornstrand, who's normally thought of as a comedic actor, is just really excellent here, and uh, you know his performance is pretty nuanced, uh, and. Apparently he really was sick during the during some of the production here anyway. So his illness uh, or his bronchitis was not entirely a performance, uh, and I, I think that probably enhanced things a bit. Uh, he really uh, is excellent in it. Um, yeah, think, yeah. Particularly that scene where he's with Jonas and he's gi- he's giving that advice. The way you could see uh, Bjornstrand's performance of Tomas in that. Uh, as he is uh, offering the counsel to him and that sort of immediate sort of trying to be, oh, uh, are you in good health? Uh, do you have financial concerns, right? The, the way I, I, I could see how a counselor kind of a the pastor, checklist. right, is trying to sort of put forward a, oh, I'm very concerned about you. I'm trying to be, you know, encouraging, 
even though it's very much an act, right? And sometimes yeah. you do that, right? Parents might do that with a child. The, the, the people do this, and he handles that scene very well where it's it's not too obvious where you go, okay, I get what you're doing as an actor, but you can see how he's portraying the character, trying to portray a certain benevolence, shall we say, towards his uh, his congregant. So he Yeah, he great, really comes across as... Yeah, he just comes across as preoccupied, right? Even in those moments where he's trying to help and... And he's just not finding the words that he wants to find, and he feels disconnected from God as, as a result. You know, he expects God to provide provide the right words to him, and he feels like that's not happening. But at the same time, yeah, there is almost this kind of dismissive sense he has toward uh, toward Jonas. I should, yeah, I should go with the the Swedish pronunciation there, but it's uh, you know, Max von Sydow is. I mean, let's talk about him. You know, let's his performance is pretty interesting. I mean, he's very, very few words here, uh, and his sense of dread and hopelessness is really wonderfully communicated just through his expressions and through his eyes. Um, probably, it's just it's an interesting performance. It's a fairly fairly brief performance. I mean, of course, this is one of uh, Bergman's uh, staple actors and he he really is kind of relegated to this fairly small role but it's a very important role obviously and and, and this character serves as the real rupture in the text when he eventually commits suicide any any thoughts on on Max von Sydow here I would love, of course, when you know that he and Bergman were such great collaborators and we realize how often he did play a very prominent role in Bergman's work. It's interesting to see him in such a small part, right? Yeah. Um, but I think I felt fat, more fascinating than even his performance is the way in which Bergman frames the character of Jonas. Uh, yeah, I noticed that too. The the profile shots often, right? As a matter of fact, his head, mm-hmm. his posture, the bowing down uh, just a little bit. And then when you do the reverse shot and you see Christ on the crucifix, also very much the same head posture, right? And so it's it's the sense of this man who is beaten, right? I mean, there's a clear visual connection that's being drawn between the two of them uh, in that particular scene as they're speaking in the office. Uh, I think... You know, it's it's a performance that, to me, actually really kind of washes away. Uh, I, I feel like, now that might be intentional on the part uh, of Max von Sydow, because I think he is perhaps trying to play a man who sort of is just disappearing into the modern world and into the anxieties of, of the nuclear age. So it could be a very purposeful thing, but it does seem like the, he's almost a non-entity. Uh, as portrayed in this particular character. Yeah, he's really more of a a tool for the story, I guess, versus a, a fully realized character. And and that's fine. I mean I I think, you know, he's not the primary focus here. Uh but yeah you, you mentioning the framing I think is is important. You know, even that initial scene where He's there with his wife and just how he's framed kind of in the background, uh, kind of turned away. There's a lot communicated visually. I thought that was obviously very well considered and well thought out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, his wife is probably, I mean, fine performance, but you know, probably not a lot to to say about her beyond, you know, she did not seem terribly upset upon learning that her husband committed suicide. I'm sure she was in shock at the at the time, but her her attitude almost seemed like I hate to say one of relief, but there was almost a, a hint of relief that I, I felt come through in her performance. Oh, I didn't interpret and, it that way at all. Well I almost like she expected it to happen and I mean it wasn't Relief is maybe the wrong word. It it wasn't a sense of happiness. It was a sense of almost like, okay, this is inevitable. It's finally happened. Uh, this was, you know, his dread was a burden on her as well. And she just didn't seem terribly upset, right? Uh, so it was an interesting choice. I, I, I guess I saw right. it as her thinking, uh, yet another thing I have to deal with, right? Uh, so I, I brought him here. I got him to the church uh, to talk to somebody. I've tried to get, I've got you know, all these kids I'm taking care of. I'm doing all these things. Now I got this moping husband who's concerned about China having the nuclear bomb. And, yeah. you know, he may as well drop a nuclear bomb on me because now I have all these kids <laughs> and I have no means of support. Right? I, I took it as that way. And again, like the the sense of the, the fruitlessness of uh, Thomas's uh, uh, ministry. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a very painful and awkward scene when he goes and meets with Karin uh, to talk about uh, Jonas's suicide. And granted, yeah. those are not going to be, if anybody's ever had to do that kind of interaction, you know that it's, there's not exactly a script and a, a, no. a clear plan of how you say something, don't say something. Uh, and no two people are going to receive that news the same way or do the same thing with it. But boy, Thomas is really shown there as being uh, particularly ineffective and inept, right? Um, you know, he just asks, "Can we read? From, do you, would you like to read from the Bible?" Uh, but not a sense of, <laughs> you know, would you need me to have help? Do you want me to come in with you to talk to your children? He just kind of leaves her, uh, and so uh, you see her through the window. You know, kind of we presume, you know, telling the children, starting to tell the children that their father has killed himself. Um, you know, but I, I took yeah, your, it was kind of his his sense of obligation was fulfilled, and then he was done. Right. You know, he sees himself with regard to her, and probably regard to Jonas, a a person of uh, duty, right? But not a person of of love uh, towards them. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating in that uh, you know, you wonder to what extent is he on grappling with his own guilt, uh, because clearly his his conversation with Jonas does not help Jonas. Uh, and it very quickly turns into his own extrapolation upon his own guilt and his own lack of faith and his own sense that, well, maybe there is no God and it means nothing anyway. And if that's the case, you know, wouldn't that be a relief and then just to have death be a thing that, you know, wipes it all out. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, to what extent you got to assume he's kind of aware of the fact that I probably contributed to this suicide so fast. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so... You think then, okay, how do I go and talk to that uh, that widow and children? And kind of, I know I have to. I can't not do it, but I don't really want to be there. And kind of find it every quick out he could so he wouldn't have to confront that reality and deal with that. That's how I understood that scene anyway. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's fine. I, I don't know. I, I, I never got the sense that he had a terrible sense of guilt either. And, I mean, you, you look at the scene in the church where he learns that he shot himself. I mean, he, he's fairly, his, I, he doesn't have much of a reaction to that. I mean, not Isn't that, that he's kind a terribly of the, emotive person to begin with, but... Um, well, that's kind of Northern European, right? To be, I, I suppose, I suppose. But I, I always felt like his guilt was secondary to his own personal crisis that was pre-existing. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, I think if he had much guilt, it was maybe over the fact that he didn't feel more upset than he did, you know, versus, you know, feeling that he truly caused or contributed to a suicide. Uh, and, and you just going back to the scene where, where he's helping the police retrieve his body basically. And just how, how distant that whole scene is. You know, I mean, it's kind of meant to, to show him, I think in isolation, uh, as he's kind of walking back and forth, uh, by the river there. But at the same time, again, he's just not upset or doesn't come across as being terribly upset. And granted, it's a wide shot, so we're not seeing the nuances of his expressions. But he seems just very occupied with the mechanics of, okay, well, this happened. I'm going to help them get the body into the, the ambulance here. And and oh, now I just I have more to do as a result of this. I have to go talk to his family. And he just I never got the sense that he was overwhelmed by any true sense of of guilt uh for for his his weakness um and, but maybe that's just my own interpretation oh it's entirely possible that yours is the correct one i think this is a film since it's about so much a character who is enigmatic for most of the film it's a little hard to necessarily always know exactly how to interpret him but that's not entirely mm-hmm. unlike a real person either right and there might be a mixture of things and how he's being realized by Bjornstrand's performance yeah well let's talk about Marta uh, another great performance I mean Ingrid Thulin uh, plays her and I, I would say she's probably the most complicated character of the film I mean <laughs> Very uh, an atheist who prays. Well, yeah, you know, and it's funny because the 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 opening scene, which is the the church service, of course, and you kind of have you know, it's a very sparse congregation, and you see her sitting there. I mean, she seems like possibly the most devout or most faithful of any of the the people sitting there. And and maybe in retrospect, you know, going back to watch that scene again, knowing that her character is an atheist, maybe that would give you a different interpretation on her expressions. But, um, you know, there's that moment of pause, I guess, when she is taking communion that kind of suggests that there's something else going on. Uh, but she's, yeah, just a very complicated character. I hear someone who's just very lonely and really looking for any kind of connection and she's chosen uh tomas to to be really the object of her affection and it's an odd choice you know to have a an atheist pursue a pastor but 
you know, her attraction to him, I think, hinges on his crisis and on his vulnerability and the fact that she maybe thinks that he is an atheist at heart too. But I, I don't really see her... I mean, she clearly doesn't value religious belief in a significant way. So the fact that she doesn't value it probably means that she's indifferent to whether or not someone else that she cares for believes uh, whether they believe or not. So it's a pretty nuanced performance, and, and there are times where she comes across as just very desperate, right? Uh, but at the same time, we, we do think that her affections are real and the the connection she feels with Tomas is real even though he treats her with such disdain um he's lost his wife four years prior and it's pretty clear that he has no interest in trying to replace her uh despite Marta's advances uh any thoughts on on her character her performance I think you're right that uh, Marta is probably the most complex character in the entire film. Uh, Not just from those general character talking points, atheistic uh, congregant who is also the mistress of the pastor, right? Um, But also because her function in the film is the most complicated, I would say. And I do have to give Bergman credit here as a writer because it'd be very easy to make her into a metaphor, a symbol of something, right? And uh, there are certain elements of that. Like I said, Martha and St. Martha, or the wounds and the wounds of Christ, uh, kind of a, yeah. a stigmata that's going on there. So there are things he's doing there, and even just this idea, okay, my purpose will be to love you, and uh, that's where she finds her meaning. And so there is something very Christ-like in that. But she's not a Christ figure, Right. It, she's a, no. she's not. It doesn't perfectly map that way. And so that's where you have to appreciate Bergman as the screenwriter being able to realize this is a character, not just a metaphor, not just an allegory of some sort. Right. Uh, and I, I think you could say she's the most sympathetic because she is the person that seems to be genuinely real and flawed and broken and beaten and still trying to do something good. And that scene at the end where she's in the church waiting for the afternoon service and is speaking to the, um, to the organist, uh, Frederick, uh, you know, who's basically giving her the advice, leave, right? Move on. You can get out of here. Uh, but her willingness to stay, right, and to, to start praying, right, instead of getting up and leaving, uh, tells you something about her devotion to this man and her desire at some level for him to be who he's supposed to be, right? And to offer him what he needs to be who he, need, uh, he needs to be, uh, even if it doesn't make total sense to her, right? And there's something kind mm-hmm. of noble in that, but she's at the same time a very flawed person, right? Um, she's not by any means uh, the most virtuous of, of, of characters. Uh, she's not by any means... Um, you know, matching with what he needs him, uh, you know, in terms of if she's really trying to advance him as a, as his own identity or ideal, right. By having a mistress, I suppose you'd say she's not doing that. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's interesting how, yeah, she's trying to love him, but she maybe also at the same time 
hindering him in that love. Well, yeah, it's kind of a a mixture of selfishness and selflessness, right? So he has, or, you know, she has a desire to help him and to bring him out of his melancholy, but, um, you know, she's doing so to hopefully gain a, a life companion. So there's, there's a lot of mixture of, of interests and desires there. Um, and we should, we should talk about the organist too, because it, he makes quite an impression for being in the film, even less than Max von Sydow. Uh, he's so Frederick Blom, uh, played by, uh, Olaf Thunberg, very effective little performance and kind of a source of comedy in the film, probably the only source of comedy in the film. <laughs> You know him checking his pocket watch as he's playing the organ in the beginning, and and just kind of his aloof attitude toward toward religion, or or at least toward the kind of the the, the trappings of of tradition there uh, within the the structure of of a, a typical church service. So he he kind of sees this as a job. He's there. He's quite happy if the, if the service is canceled, but he almost has kind of a flirtatious quality toward Marta to a degree. I mean, not really in a genuine sense, more of a, in a sense of, of ridiculing her and kind of almost a court jester sense, uh, pointing out the, the flaws in her, in her mission to to free Tomas, so uh, I thought it was an effective little performance. Yeah, it's very slight, and again, I, comedic might be a, a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> this is this is a a film where I think comedy goes to die. <laughs> um, but <laughs> oh, there are a couple I, little moments there. There's a couple little moments. It might be not unlike Shakespeare's clown, right? Yeah. Uh, so you you have that court clown jester. figure. That, that comes in and says by his demeanor or by his, um, his, his dialogue something that would undercut perhaps some of the, um, the own self-seriousness of the people around him, right? And I think that's what Frederick offers in, in that particular role. And uh, it's maybe even a sort of sign of cynicism on Bergman's part, a part of, you know, Sometimes, you know, behind the curtain, you know, this is kind of what the people in the church are like. Uh, they're, they're not all saints. They're not all holy devout. Uh, they're very, they're very flawed people like the rest of us. So it might be a, a little bit of a wink uh, to everybody about that as well. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wasn't really, you know, I, I really look at the, the figure that's the most interesting out of the, the say, the Thomas and Marta uh, complex or uh, relationship as being Alga. Right, the the sexton who has this uh, hunchback and is very much the uh, the devout one, and yeah, his conversation with Thomas uh, at the very end uh, is really quite a, a fascinating one, right? And uh, I think actually for those who've seen the whole the faith trilogy uh, can see how that conversation really becomes, I think, in many ways, the focus of the final trilogy called the silence right the final film of the yeah. trilogy uh it seems like interesting that these films each of them's kind of the next film is 
the continuation of the last, the previous film's last conversation, right? So Winter Light, uh, which, by the way, we should talk about its title in a second here, but Winter Light's really a conversation uh, uh, or exploration of the conversation at the end of Through a Glass Darkly that says God is love. And Frederick yeah. even kind of offers a rebuttal to that, right? Oh, that's I've heard this all before. Um, in a certain sense, I think of him as Bergman's voice uh, because he's saying, I've heard the speech, I've heard all this, like Bergman would have with his dad, but I've seen their truth. I've seen who he really is as the pastor, right? But Algot, I think, is actually looking past even the man of the of the cloth and looking to what he symbolizes and is really looking to the divine and not settling just for the human instrument that's in front of him. He's the one that actually does believe in grace and does believe in God. And that last conversation between him and Thomas is a very interesting one because it's it's very ambiguous. What exactly, when Alga asks Thomas, was the silence the worst uh, suffering? And Thomas says, yes, after listening, right? Um, you know, what does that mean, right? You know, is that him saying, yeah, that is the suffering, that's the suffering I have right now? Or is that him saying, yeah, it's silent because there is nothing, right? And it's a fascinating way to think of that and to end the film on that kind of note, you know, where does this man stand as the pastor? And I'll get, I think, kind of being the one that forces him to really consider what does he believe and to see the man before him who truly does believe, I think that helps to really highlight um, the, the central, the center crisis of this, of this man, of Thomas. Yeah. Especially coming from someone that has a great physical disability, right. Or, or lives in, in chronic pain and to hear someone that lives that kind of life define, you know, the worst form of suffering as emotional suffering or existential suffering. That's, that's pretty remarkable, right? Because you would think that someone in a situation would focus on the physical suffering and he, he sees his life as, as certainly filled with that, but, um, also understands that there's different kinds of suffering beyond that. And I think it's interesting he talks about Christ's suffering is he almost tries to diminish it in a way and not in a uh, not in a, a negative fashion, not in a way to devalue what Christ did. But, you know, he said, well, he suffered for what, maybe four hours or so physically, you know, whereas I'm living in this pain for years and years. So it implies that there must be a deeper sense of suffering than just physical suffering. Right. Uh, so that's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Well, it's interesting also... to have a character in that setting. Uh, interesting conclusion for him to make, right? And it's also a nice thing for us, the audience, to really kind of consider because we've been actually watching yeah. their sense for Thomas undergo the same thing, right? The passion, right? When you think of the timing of everything. He has the morning service, it finishes, uh, and then he has a three o'clock service in the other town that he needs to get ready for. So you're seeing him over the course of the same length of time that Christ suffered, the same time of day, right? So it's mm -hmm. that same idea. Uh, again, that's where maybe the richness of having him be a pastor allows you to pull in some of these other uh, extra textual uh, motifs to help 
yeah. amplify your own thoughts and ideas in a way that having him be another kind of profession, another kind of life would not have. But I think, you know, it does hit home for us. Okay. Thomas is going through a passion too. He's going through a suffering right now too. He's got a little bit of that physical suffering because you keep hearing how he's sick, the cold, the bronchitis. Uh, but really that's not where his suffering's located, right? And he might talk about that even and kind of when people say to him, oh, you're not doing well, you, they clearly are acknowledging that there's a suffering taking place. And he, he presents the physical suffering to them as that's what it is. But actually it's no, it's in the soul, right? That's where the real suffering is for the human person. And so to get that sense of the Christ having experienced something of that is being explored here, I think is something richly thematic in terms of understanding then what have I just been watching for and really come to see maybe a, a connection between Tomas and Christ uh, in that final scene. Yeah. Any other characters we wanted to cover? I think that, that that's pretty well, much they, it. Are, uh, are there really any others to cover? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty, pretty small cast. Uh, well, any, any final thoughts? I mean, what uh, do you think, I mean, I, in terms of its place in this trilogy, um, I guess a better question might be, you know, why do you think this is Bergman's favorite film? That I have a hard time answering. I don't know. Um, I think obviously that it, it can't not be lost on him from his own experience with his father, right? And so I think having that might be uh, a part of it. It could also represent sort of a, a pivotal moment in his career in which his earlier films had maybe been exploring, does God exist? Does not God not exist? And then after this, his focus becomes less on the divine and more on the human, right? Uh, it's more about uh, what is it to be human in this world and how is it that we're going to live in this kind of um, uh, new age, right? With, with all these different things around us. So I think it, it could also be because of in his overall career, this marks a turning point in his in his preoccupations, right? And so you might have a certain element to which he sees it from that perspective as well, something very deeply personal. I mean, I do get the sense watching it; it's a very personal film for Bergman. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you can you can hear his voice. I, I mean, a lot of these conversations, it just seems like it's it's Bergman talking, right? Well, I will we can say, talk about. Uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say on the cinematography, I would say that I think, you know, it's an interesting point that you made about the fact that it is less polished. I mean, Bergman's films can look very rich. Uh, you know, a number of them won the cinematography Oscar, right? And so he can use color, he can use black and white framing, all that very well. Here it's very sparse, but it isn't to say unintelligent filmmaking, right? I think that sometimes is lost on people when they try to make shall we say, unpretty motion pictures that they just sort yeah. of make, um, they just look kind of nasty. This is a very thoughtful, I mean, how he composes his shots is very thoughtful. How he thinks of editing between them is very thoughtful. They not, might not be polished, but they are well considered. And I think in particular where that's very evident is even in that opening scene, right? The, the first uh, nearly 10 minutes of the film is just the church service, right? Of him delivering communion. And I think... Yeah. Uh, the way in which all of them are framed in different shots and the, the kind of enclosed nature of the church 
uh, how it has that suffocating feel, particularly in the close-ups of Thomas. Uh, you know, all of that really is very effective, and it does impact you as an audience member. So I have to just say, I think the filmmaking is very strong here, subtle and easy to miss, but I think very strong. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the opening in particular is very well considered and like you said the framing and the editing everything is very well thought out and it sets the tone of the film and and you get this almost this sense of dread communicated through uh through communion right that which should be anything but but dreadful for its uh for its participants so, Which yeah, incidentally yeah. gets to the, the, I want to say earlier, so obviously in America we call this winter light, but the actual yeah. literal translation is the communicants uh, from the Swedish. And so I think that's a fascinating point. You know, if you think about the title, what is it really about? You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. really, it's, it's about this idea of, of the people trying to be in communion and yet it isn't really quite happening, at least not the way they, they want, right? So it's, it's an interesting title uh, when you think about it that way. Yeah, I always wonder why uh, translation or translations are changed like that sometimes. It's probably a, maybe a marketing concern. That's all I think. I more think than of. anything. Yeah. I can't imagine there was a huge popular market for Swedish films in 1963 America, but... Maybe I'm wrong, and it was very important how you marketed it for the U.S. box office. Apparently so. I don't know. Well, we can talk about Criterion's release. So uh, the original release of this, of course, was the DVD box set, and uh, there's a video interview with uh, Bergman biographer Peter Cowie talking about the film, which is worthwhile. I mean, it's kind of his his take on on the production and and some of the themes um and it, incidentally the um the documentary Ingmar Bergman makes a movie is pretty much documenting the production of this film and that is included in the DVD set I I'm not sure did that I don't think that made it to the the Bergman blu-ray box set did it that that documentary yeah it's actually on the disc for winter light it is okay all right um i just missed it on there i guess well that's good i was hoping that was buried in there somewhere Uh, Um, it's a great it's a great making of film the urban ingmar bergman makes a movie well good yeah i'm glad that's included uh so of course the the blu-ray version is only available currently in the in the bergman box set um, along with the two other films from the trilogy. So I expect they'll release that individually at some point. They seem to be on their way to releasing a lot of these Bergmans as individual titles in addition to the box set. But um, for now, you have to you have to get the big, the big brick if you want it in high definition. So any, or any thoughts on the release? Or wait for the Criterion channel to start streaming again because I bet a number yeah, will be on that. But Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, well, I so I have the DVD as well as the bo- the Bergman Blu-ray box set, so I was able to watch it on both. I actually watched the film twice in preparation for our podcast here uh, after having seen it years ago when I first watched it. Um, you know, it's a very impressive release. Uh, 
the uh, the Blu-ray box set I think really does a nice job uh, with it in terms of the visual presentation of it. And uh, again, it, it's really nice the um, the opportunity to hear Bergman himself talk about it, right? Uh, that little video introduction from him about the film, and then as well as the making of documentary is a really great uh, exploration of, of uh, the make how Bergman went about making this movie. Yeah, so hopefully people are getting their second crack at that Bergman box set. So it seems like it's available at this point or or becoming more available after selling out that first run pretty quickly. So in closing, Nate, uh, does Winter Light belong in the Criterion Collection? I'm going to say no. Uh, As much as I, I like it, I don't think it's great Bergman. I think it's perfectly passable and good and as you know if you were thinking okay maybe his whole faith trilogy as a whole should be in it fine i could see an argument for that but as its own individual film i would say no i think it's good but i don't think there's anything particularly noteworthy about it or that it had any major impact uh and since there's a lot of other bergman films in the collection i don't think this would be the one that you'd single out to say belongs in it Yeah, I, I, I guess I pretty much agree with you. I, I like the film a lot. I mean, I think it's really strong. Uh, I do think as a trilogy, that's probably worth inclusion, but as an individual film, maybe not so much. Um, but it's it's definitely worthwhile. It's worth people's time, and especially within the context of the Faith trilogy as a whole. that closes our discussion for this evening thanks for for listening our next film will be stanley kubrick's spartacus which will be released the first friday in april thanks again and have a good night